This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, your podcast to learn all about the benefits and complications of being bendy. This is your co-host Jennifer Milner here today with host Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we introduce our special guest, a couple of quick reminders. Please subscribe and leave a review. This really helps grow the audience. And please also email your questions or call the number in the show notes and leave a voicemail. We may answer it in the next episode. Today's special guest is Dr. Emily Sherb. Emily is a physical therapist specializing in circus and performing arts medicine. Through her almost 30 years of training and working in the circus arts, she has gained deep insight on how circus bodies work in the air and on the ground. Emily now teaches workshops for circus artists, instructors, and healthcare providers with the mission of improving health and safety in circus training and performance. Her best-selling book, Applied Anatomy of Aerial Arts, was published in 2018. Dr. Emily Sher, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here with you. Yay, I'm excited. S- Linda, are you excited for this I'm one? I'm so excited. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yes, I'm I, super excited. I feel like I'm at the circus. <laughs> oh, wow. Is it all the lights and sparkly costumes that I'm wearing right, right now? Yep. You cannot see us, but we are all wearing sparkly costumes right now. <laughs> oh, perfect. So, <laughs> Emily, you started out as a circus artist and aerial dance performer. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. Um, I started out as even further back as a gymnast as a young kid, and I was exposed to circus um, as a hobby or a fun thing to do at a summer camp when I was still pretty young, and it turned out that I really enjoyed performing a lot more than I enjoyed competing. Um, And there's similar demands on the body and kind of the culture of training and I kind of slowly shifted over to circus and by the time I finished high school I was both doing a little teaching and doing a little performing and ended up taking some gap years to go out and do some performing before going on to to college and then taking more time off before going back to grad school. So um, kind of a a long and winding road that it's always circled back around circus since I was pretty young. Nice. Well, so what did you learn about, before we get to how you treat other people's bodies, what did you learn about your body while you were performing and studying aerial arts? Oh my goodness. Um, I learned that (laughs) bodies are complex and fallible, even if um, your 20-something-year-old self feels like it's all going to be okay. Um, (laughs) No, just just like a lot of us that grew up as athletes and artists, um, dancers, gymnasts, performers in general, we're always looking to to present our best selves. And especially when we're younger, we don't realize how those repetitive movement patterns might be influencing our long-term lives Mm -hmm. or how um, any injuries that we assume will just go away may stay with us for a while or reoccur in different parts of our body in different different patterns. Um, Also as a circus artist in particular, when I started, circus was still really small in this country. and so the knowledge about how to teach it was still evolving and is still evolving as all good pedagogy should, um, but it was really nascent. Um, and we knew kind of what the body should look like and 
not necessarily how to get it there. Similar to dance, even after all these years, you know, we're still talking about, well, in port de bras in ballet, like how are the shoulders actually working to achieve that long line? And what is a healthy way for our shoulders and bodies to be working? But in circus, it was kind of accelerated a little bit faster because you've got end range motion and high demands on the body. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still trying to figure out how to actually teach that to another person versus like the family handing down and passing of knowledge that was more traditional prior to circus being available on a recreational level like it is now or having schools that are training people to a professional level. Mm -hmm. So in all of your experience, um, as you were going through it yourself, is that what made you think, hey, the things I'm learning about myself, I want to use to help other people? Like what pushed you into the PT area and wanting to specialize in circus arts? Uh, I, as a person who's always been a mover, um, I always knew that I wanted to do something with the body. I wanted to do something with orthopedics. I wasn't sure if I was going to go and be an orthopedist because that's mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, doctor, like when you're 10, right. you're like, oh, that, I know what that is. Um, or if I want to go chiropractic or I want to go physical therapy. So, but I always knew from the time I was pretty young that I was fascinated by the body and movement and movement was kind of the highest priority for me as a kid. Um, mm. I, I never stopped moving according to my parents um <laughs> but movement was always such a high priority i knew i wanted to do something studying the body even before i found circus and then with circus um you know it just kind of expanded my knowledge of movement and through circus i really learned how to teach as well mm. and that's probably what drew me to physical therapy in the in the most direct line was that love of teaching and that love of explaining how bodies work to another person and instructing movement and observing movement um, was kind of how I got into PT. And when I got to PT, then I realized all the things that we were doing in circus that were questionable. <laughs> and, and that made me go back into the circus realm. I mean, I always wanted to work with circus performers because I love my community and it's such mm -hmm. a big part of my life. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go to PT school to be a circus PT. It's, oh, I'm going to go to PT school because I love movement and bodies. And then learning more about bodies brought me back to circus. Interesting. And so it was your, your love of it that got you into PT school. And then when you're in there, you're like, oh, holy crap, maybe we should revisit how we're doing some of this and how I can help them move safely and, and, and be healthy. So, so as you were going through PT school and, and, and moving through that, um, what sort of training did you find for wanting to specialize in circus and performing arts? Yeah, so I went to Washington University in St. Louis uh, for my graduate training, and um, their program is very heavily centered on movement and movement systems. Um, and so it was actually a really great fit for someone coming from a movement background um, and that idea of looking at movement impairments and how the movement pattern may be imperfect and how that might relate to the actual injured tissue. Mm. Um, and so it was very, very relevant for me. Um, it was a great mix of my using my circus training eye and watching movement and being able to pick up on that in a normal person who's doing a step up on a stair mm -hmm. or a forward bend or raising their arms up over their head. Um, I, my brain was kind of used to slowing down movement and watching the pieces. Um, and so I think I, it, it was almost like I felt like at least in the movement observation parts, I had a leg up on my classmates because I was so used to watching bodies. Um, mm. I, there's a few other people in my class also from kind of a dance performance background that kind of, it was the same thing. We're so used to watching movement 
and um, kind of taking it in and, and feeling what that feels like in our bodies, that kinesthetic learning, that, um, that it is, I think, a little bit easier for us who are used to that versus just the academic side um, to, to learn that component, to really see what our patients are doing and how they're moving. Um, mm -hmm. So the type of training that I got was actually very relatable for me. Um, I know not all schools are going to be as focused that way. They're going to look more tissue and structure and function. Um, and this was much more movement to get at that bigger picture. Um, so for me, it was a great fit. Uh, mm -hmm. And I almost lucked into that. But <laughs> it was a really great, great experience and a great program for me. Excellent. Well, and some of the best things to have happen, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, that was kind of lucky that that happened or very fortuitous, yeah. right? I didn't yeah. really understand the differences in types of PTs and types of training that people could get. I just was like, oh, this one's good. Right. Well, and Linda and I are both very familiar or more familiar, I should say, with the world of dance medicine than, uh, and, and, and helping dancers than with circus arts specifically. So um, it's interesting to me to have seen just in the past few IADAMS meetings that circus arts are starting to come into their own as a distinct subset or even distinct different set of it. Um, what, what do you see as some of the differences between specializing in circus arts rather than performing arts? Yeah. Um, so one of the, so I'll start with what's similar. Okay. <laughs> um, what's similar between the disciplines is the, um, the artist's focus, their treatment of their body as a tool and an instrument that um, they're always going to go above and beyond. You need to tell them, no, really, I want you to do this, but I don't want you to do this. And I want you to only do five of those. Mm -hmm. 30 is not better. Um, and also with that, the fear and anxiety that comes from your body being your instrument and being your tool that, that you perform with um, and the fear that can come along with that, especially in a professional artist, but even mm -hmm. in many hobbyists, um, they, it becomes so much a part of the identity of the person, especially when you're using your full, your full body to, to do something in your brain as well. And that's where the similarities lie. The difference in, differences lie in that so much of circus is happening um, at end range of motion. And so much of circus is happening um, in a environment where we're still learning a lot about the body. It's grown so very, very rapidly versus dance, which has a much longer history. Um, circus, at least in its current form, and again, in the United States, around the world, it's a little bit of a different culture. But circus in the US has exponentially grown in the last 10, 15 years. In about 2007, there were about 10 schools in the US. Now there's almost 800. I'm hoping that wow. lockdown and pandemic does not take too many of them out. I know a few of them are really suffering and, and struggling right now, but um, there's really been a lot of schools cropping up of instructors of huge different backgrounds and varieties. There's um, not as much teacher training. There's getting to be more and more over the last couple of years, but again, with growth that rapid and that extreme, it's really hard for there to be consistent messaging um, uh, from the teaching aspect and from the students and with Instagram and YouTube and mm -hmm. all the social media ways of learning, keeping a consistent message of how it should be done is, is harder. Um, there are some things about form that have been getting more spread far and wide, <clears throat> but it's also the interpretation of that form on the body and, and what that feels like and looks like. Um, the other thing that's really different about circus is I mean, in some ways similar to dance in that there's a wide variety of things. But if we think about circus, circus can be 
an acrobat tumbling, kind of like a gymnast. Mm -hmm. It could be an aerialist in the air, hanging from their hands, their knees, their feet, their ankles, depending on what apparatus they're on. It can be a juggler standing on the ground and moving their arms in, in a rhythmic pattern and using all that brain work. Um, it can sometimes be, even be a musician or, you know, circus can really encompass so much um, mm -hmm. that even within circus, uh, you kind of have to pick and choose what you're actually looking at. But um, for me, what I tend to specialize in circus are my more acrobatic elements. So ground acrobats and aerialists um, and leaving some of the more like um, vocalists and dancers and, and the rest are a little, little further afield. But circus is just so big. And what can mm -hmm. be defined as circus keeps changing as well as circus moves into theaters as in and out of right. tents and um, or back to tents in a lot of cases. Or into um, a big, huge pool, swimming into, pool, right? Into a huge <laughs> swimming pool, you know, and now they have to be divers and swimmers as right. well. You know? um, or, you know, you've, you, you've got artists that are um, used to maybe doing theater work or nightclub work and then they're all of a sudden in a tent show because those are kind of getting a revival back in the U.S., mm -hmm. And now they have to help set up the tent and the physical labor that's involved in that. So there's a huge range in what's demanded on a circus body. So it, it very much depends on the artist and their discipline and um, even within that discipline, their apparatus and their environment. Yeah. So um, as you have sort of worked with this whole spectrum of circus artists, um, this is such a stupid question, but I'll ask anyway. Have you encountered a lot of people with hypermobility? It's <laughs> <laughs> not a stupid question at all because, you know, we, we sometimes think of people with hypermobility as um, fragile and not able right. to, to do things. But realistically, just like in dance, hypermobility is incredibly common in circus because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people look at it as uh, an extreme movement thing and they're like, oh, my body can do that. So, yes. Um, a ton of people with hypermobility and those who have normal mobility or even kind of leaning on the edge of hypermobility who look at hypermobility as the norm that they're trying to achieve. Right. So there's, there's the kind of the messaging and the cognitive aspect of what is mobility in this population? Mm -hmm. Kind of like dancers, like it's normal to have your extension of, um, of your leg to be more than 90 degrees, but you know, our normal ranges of motion for an average Joe off the street is 90 degrees is plenty, you know, and it's right. Right. Our, our perceptions of what's normal. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very different, I'm sure. Well, and we've spoken a number of times on the show, Linda and I have, about that sort of whole spectrum of hypermobility disorders, and it's still kind of a moving target, trying to get it codified and pinned down, and, you know, the definitions change every month, it seems. Um, <laughs> but in general, what what do you see? Do you see more people with sort of asymptomatic joint hypermobility? Do you see systemic hypermobility? Do you see connective tissue disorders? Like where do most people with hypermobility fall in the circus work? Most of my patients and clients are, are more in the asymptomatic um, hypermobility spectrum because, and they don't, a lot of them don't realize how hypermobile they are. Mm -hmm. um, again, because the normalization of of that sure. in the circus community, even in, again, even in the recreational level, or especially in the youth, youth performers or, or youth, youth recreational artists as well. Um, so most of them are kind of falling in that category. Some have a little more of the connective tissue issues, mm -hmm. but that's honestly more rare. I think still because circus is newer, 
Um, and because so many people are getting into it as adults, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the schools that are opening up are almost exclusively adult or exclusively aerial. Um, and because of that, you don't see the kids that kind of have grown up in it and kind of found themselves there. So we're, I think there's still a little bit of a fear of mm -hmm. accessing circus if you are hypermobile, which personally I have had great results using circus as a tool to work with people with hypermobility. Oh, interesting. Because as long as you're training well and you're training strong and you're training with good form, you're learning to control your range of motion through its full range. So contortionists don't just sit on their heads. They have to lift their bodies up and over to get their butts onto their heads if they're doing it right. And so they're learning to control all that spinal articulation all the way through the range of motion instead of just kind of collapsing there. Again, with good coaching and not learning from YouTube and right, that kind right. of thing. But with good coaching, you're learning as a contortionist, as someone who's demonstrating that hypermobility, to really articulate and control the motion, which gives these artists um, a better availability of their proprioception, it seems mm -hmm. like to me. Granted, that is not scientifically documented. This is clinical <laughs> experience. I feel like um, teaching these, these bodies who have started to learn movement like dancers, you know, their, their brains are starting to wrap them, wrap around learning movement pathways and teaching them how the, how the body actually works, where the movement should be coming from. They're able to get better awareness of where the, all of that is and learn to have better control in mid-range as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I notice um, a lot in the dance world, and I think, Linda, what you've seen as well, is that there's more connective tissue disorders and, and systemic hypermobility in the younger population, in the, the pre-professionals, and it has a tendency to self-select as they move up professionally. It's too hard for them not to be injured. It's too hard for them to kind of keep going. Um, and I, but then when I see them retire, because I work with pre-professionals and professionals, when I see them stop dancing, it gets worse and it hurts even more. So I love that you're saying, don't be afraid of working with someone who's trained in it. Um, to help you strengthen what you have and to kind of help you stay there. But I love that. Yeah, with some of the physicians, at least in my community, who have gotten to know me, when they have a kiddo, because Circus in Seattle, Washington, where I am, um, is actually getting pretty large. We have a couple really large schools um, here, in, here in the area, and they do work with people of all ages. And when I've had physicians come up to me and ask, like, oh, I have this kid who came into my office, they're hypermobile, they're working, you know, on aerial. I'm, I'm telling, should I tell them not to do it? Or parents, parents are even better. I'm like, no, please tell them to continue training. Make sure they work with so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so. Right. Please tell them to continue yeah. training. It's going to really give them a better strength and a better starting place. Right. And I love that you mentioned appropriate. And I'm, I love you mentioned proprioception as well, because that's such an important part um, for people with hypermobility is to continue trying to train their proprioception. And that seems like such a great way to help them work with where is my, where is my bone in the socket? Like where is my joint in space and how can I continue training myself that way to, in a healthy way, as you said, right? One of my um, earliest, yeah, she wasn't that early in my, in my career, but kind of mid, mid middle between when I started and now, I guess she, she came into my office and she was a new patient of mine. She's an aerialist. Um, and she said, okay, I, I can do one pull-up, but I can't do two, and I can't figure out why I can't do the second pull-up. And she came in, and she showed me a pull-up, and she did one, 
okay pull up you know it wasn't <laughs> the best but it wasn't the worst but as she lowered she actually subluxed both her shoulders yeah so she was no longer stabilizing in the socket mm -hmm. and that's why she couldn't do the second pull up and it didn't hurt her at all and she had no idea and her coach at the time didn't really understand what was happening because it's not necessarily something you're familiar with seeing right um, and as soon as she learned what that was and that and i had to verbally tell her that's not the end of your range the end of your range is here you need to control that you can control that with the rotation of your arm and, and by lowering this way right. and within 10 minutes she could distinguish the difference and stop going there mm -hmm. <laughs> and stop putting her shoulders and her joints in that position because she had the strength she just didn't have the awareness of knowing where she was and like helping her identify those different those different things but yeah the proprioception of being an aerialist in space and knowing even without reference to the ground where your foot is where your hand is where up or down is i think that also helps with that brain training too absolutely and i think that when they're younger if they can work with somebody like you that probably really helps to prevent injury rather than just getting them after they've been injured and yes. I'm curious, as, as someone who is often on the front line of the medical intervention for these, for these circus artists, um, you might be the first medical professional in their life that has seen signs that they do have some kind of hypermobility disorder, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or some other disorder. Um, although, as you're mentioning, sometimes a medical professional will have been involved in the, another medical professional, excuse me, will have been involved in the, in the process. Um, how do you handle that if you see somebody who you're working with and this has not been raised by anyone else on their team? Um, so I haven't had it with a kid yet. I've had it with adults, which is interesting, where they don't mm. quite realize what's going on. Um, and I think, you know, with kids, it's still raising awareness, both in the kids and the parents and the instructors of, um, what pain is normal and what pain is not normal in circus, because there's a kind of a phrase in circus, circus hurts and that education of circus hurts because there's pressure on different parts of your body and it might bruise you, um, as you're getting used to things, um, and circus hurts as in my joints hurt or something is wrong and educating and working on that knowledge. Um, and then part of what I do, so I'm kind of tangentially addressing your question, but part of what I do is go in and, and work with educators. Um, and I, I, I'm really trying to increase the knowledge in circus educators on what, what to look for in, in bodies, including hypermobility, um, so that they're aware that this kid might need a little more cueing to know where their body is in space, to take things a little bit slower um, and, and to work with them. In my community, I have a couple of physicians I work with and might refer out to them um, if, if we need to, depending on kind of what's going on with the body. But it's a lot of education and giving permission to, to slow down the education process with learning because um, hypermobile people tend to have lower proprioception. I know we keep coming back to proprioception. Right. <laughs> they tend to have lower proprioception. The learning process just takes longer. And sometimes it's saying to them, hey, it is okay if people in your class are doing XYZ and you're doing ABC. Um, and, and kind of explaining to them why and how I like to frame it as your body will allow you to do these really cool other things and you just need to learn how to control it and use it. Um, but that their, their strength and their control is going to take a little longer to, to catch up. Mm -hmm. 
That's a great, that's a great explanation. And, and um, yeah, people, people don't like to feel like they're falling behind or, or not doing what they, what they feel that they might be capable of doing. So that's, so that's helpful. And, and speaking of what they might be able to do, if you're hypermobile, your, as you have mentioned, your joint end range is going to be different than someone else's joint end range end range. And so whereas in some other areas of, of life, we might tell someone who's hypermobile not to maybe work in their uh, end range. In circus, the artists actually have to do just that, right? So how do you help artists stay strong and healthy while pushing their body, bodies in the way that they need to for circus? So one of the things I work on with people is telling them when to push into that end range and when not to. So for example, kind of like a dancer standing in first position, I've, in our, um, we have a, a dance medicine or performing arts medicine group that work together here in Seattle and we see performing artists um, at a free clinic, which is a wonderful resource, but it also means we get to work with our um, other partners in the community. So I get to work with at least usually another PT and maybe an MD and um, we all see an artist together. So this is one of those times we were seeing a ballet dancer and her first position, her knees were together and her feet were turned out. And if I told you only that, you would say, okay, sounds pretty good. She's turning out well <laughs> from her hips, but her knees were so hyperextended mm -hmm. that her feet were almost like in second with her mm -hmm. knees together. And she's like, well, my knees are together, so it's fine. And we can kind of make that analogy with handstands. So in a handstand with an artist, they can lock their elbows out and hyperextend their elbows and kind of hang on the joint, or they can learn where that neutral is. So they're not locking out their elbows, they're staying in a straight arm, which is gonna be a lot more muscle for them. But again, they need that strength. Um, so they don't wanna do it then when they're usually weight bearing on the joint. Mm -hmm. When we wanna exploit that, it's just like in dance, when you're doing a leap and you want that gorgeous line with a little bit of knee hyperextension and you've got that beauty, but you don't want to do it in first position where you're like landing and load bearing in it. And the same thing holds true in circus. So when we look at arms and we're looking at, and that in handstand, same thing with standing on one leg and is the knee locked back. It's very, very similar in that way. It's just when you're in the air and you want a beautiful split position, maybe that's when you go into more of your hypermobility. But even then I want you to be able to actively get there and control on the way back. So encouraging that active control and making sure they know where normal range is in a healthy way, not like mm -hmm. in a sedentary adult way, but in a healthy <laughs> performer way, normal range and when, and when they're choosing to go past it. So again, increasing that awareness and proprioception, increasing their active strength and mobility as well. I hope all of my dancers are listening and just heard that because that is like one of the things I talk about so much of the time. First position, your heels are together and we're going to figure out how to make that happen. And I talk so much about the difference between closed chain and open chain straight, right? And how your développé leg can be hyperextended and fabulous and your standing leg is going to be not locked. Yes. And same thing with the arms. And the, I, I feel like I should just like staple it to my forehead. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> Somebody else has said it. Oh, it's so important. And, but like having that strength in that straight leg, not locked, straight, straight leg not position, locked. not locked, gives you better balance, gives mm -hmm. you better control, will give you the ability to move in and out of that position with more power and strength and mm -hmm. grace. And you'll have a longer career. So it's a win, win, win. It just stinks for right now while you're learning it. While you're learning it. Yeah. Preach it, girl. 
and 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 while we're on that uh, subject of long careers, we want to catch people before they're injured, right? Or at least you know while we still can have some really meaningful interventions. And if you're fortunate mm-hmm. enough to be able to do that, then what do you prioritize as a way of keeping them from getting injured? Yeah. So um, again, this comes back to for me. I I don't always. I am currently just one person. <laughs> I, I try. That's I try going to, to change everywhere at once, and there are other people <laughs> who are doing great work everywhere else in the world. But my, you know, it's not. Thankfully, it's not just me. There are wonderful other humans that are also working on this. But I really am prioritizing education for instructors. Mm-hmm. Trying to also teach workshop workshops for students who are learning, um, just on how the body is supposed to work. Kind of like we teach anatomy and dance as well. Um, but how is how is it supposed to work? Where is my motion supposed to be coming from? Why you know why is it that my upper back doesn't move the same way as my lower back? And how much of that is my shoulders versus my upper back? And the shoulder is one of the most important joints in circus. We stand on our hands. We hang from our hands. We hold other people above our heads with our hands. We pick people up with our hands. Um, we're juggling with our hands. And the shoulder in the community is such an under under understood joint. Um, there's so, such a lack of knowledge on, on how it works and how it moves. And there's kind of the weightlifting adage of, you know, squeeze your shoulder blades together when you do everything. Right. Really doesn't work when your arms are overhead. <laughs> I don't really think it works all that well when your arms are by your side either. But just starting with an education of, hey, how is this joint supposed to work? And what is it supposed to look like? Because I, I agree. I think if we can, if we can change the technique and the, and the language around technique and the way we talk about learning the basics of movement, we can encourage an entire generation of performing artists to have more longevity in their careers. And then again, that idea and that adage of circus hurts and what does that mean? And in young bodies, giving them the um, self-efficacy and autonomy to ask for help and that knowing when something is wrong with their body and that it's okay and it's not weakness and it's it means that you're going to be doing this longer and better, you know, and changing, hopefully, hopefully changing the conversation about what an injury is and the opportunities that an injury might present, that it's not just a bad thing or it's not something you need to hide because you're a performer um, or that it's not, not career ending if you seek good advice and good care. So um, hopefully catching them before by doing education and reaching out as much as I can with that and with others that are, that are, spreading the word. Um, and there is so much more of that going on now. And it's really interesting to see, again, as we're all in this um, little more lockdown situation, how things are moving online and how those, um, those things are being amplified. Mm-hmm. I'm sure other things are also being amplified that I would not love as much, but <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure there's somebody out there showing a video of hyperextended knees. Right. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's more than one of them, but I'm seeing a lot more <laughs> conversations about how the body should work getting, um, making the rounds and, and having more conversations about it. That's great. Yes, yes, absolutely. And how do you rehab a hypermobile artist differently from someone who's not hypermobile, if, if at all? Um, it's not that different. Um, I think there is, again, it's sometimes depending on the, uh, on the artist or the, the individual, it's maybe a little slower um, or it's more... Uh, controlled. I might work with them more in mid-range before we get to end-range, so mm-hmm. I know that they're developing their strength. 
that full range, depending on their injury and what's going on. But it's not going to be that different because for my less mobile people, often their goal is getting more of that mobility, which involves getting active control at end range because that's what it really is. And with my hypermobile people, they've got the mobility, but they need the active control. So mm -hmm. I, I'm working on active control through a full range of motion with both populations. It's just kind of a question of where do I start them? How much load am I putting them under? And, and how much range are we working through um, where, they're, where they're kind of coming at it? So not hugely different, but um, probably just with a little more understanding and a little more education, even beyond the, um, the knowledge I'm generally trying to impart on people. <laughs> Sure. And we have a really wide range of listeners. So some are going to absolutely know what you mean by active versus passive uh, range and control. But would you mind just briefly explaining what that is for those that don't? Yeah. So um, I will give you an example of a common circus stretch to, to, give, you, to give you a clue. So um, passive range of motion is when you're just kind of pushing into that range and possibly holding it or using resistance or the ground or the wall or the floor to push your body. So in circus, a very common stretch because everyone wants what we call open shoulders, meaning your arms as far back over your head as possible, um, is to put your hands on the wall and walk your feet back and stick your butt out and try to touch your chest also to the wall. So hands up overhead, up the wall, chest trying to get on the wall, but trying to get out. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you're Ouch. really pushing your shoulders <laughs> open, kind of arching back like a, kind of like a puppy pose or like a, um, um, they call it moose stretch often. And so that would be a very passive stretch for the shoulders because you're using your body weight and resistance of the wall to kind of push into a relatively uh, mobile joint to make that more active and an active control, meaning that you're using your muscles throughout the full range of motion. To, to make that more active, what I could have someone do is tie a resistance band around the wrist so they're pressing outward against that resistance band, activating their rotator cuff. So they're actively controlling the range of motion as they then also push into the wall to make themselves go down there. So they're using their muscles to get into the end range of motion mm -hmm. as opposed to using their body weight or Worst case scenario, somebody else pushing on their body to, uh, to get to the end. <laughs> but the more control you have of your muscles as you approach those end ranges, the more access you're going to have to actually use them in your performing arts or daily life. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's such an important concept because the difference between just sinking down into something or somebody, like you said, somebody pushing you there um, is so different than you actively getting there. Yeah. So. And what I look for is for people's active control to be able to actually move through almost all of the range of motion that they could push their own body into. Mm -hmm. I, I, want, I want those two to line up as closely as possible. Sure, that, that makes sense. And what other members of an artist team do you think are non-negotiable? So, you know, would it be a, a nutritionist or a strength and conditioning coach or um, who, who else do you really like to have? This is such a great question because again, Circus in the U.S. is such a um, kind of, in its, in its relatively early stages, as um, as develop as developing and with funding especially, and so there are very few circus companies that have any sort of support at all for their artists. Mm -hmm. Zero. Um, luckily, some companies might have some funding put aside. Um, I 
luckily get to work with two companies here in Seattle um, and, and help them on with their bodies, but the, the funding and the importance just isn't there. So I don't usually get the opportunity to work with other practitioners. Um, in some larger companies, like historically with Cirque du Soleil, they will have an athletic trainer or a physical therapist on the team. They often usually also have some psych help available um, to the artists. Uh, and, I, and I believe in their training programs, they have other facilities as well. But uh, it's, it hasn't been, again, it hasn't been normalized. Um, that bodies need care, which is so stupid because they know it does, right? The artists know it does, but it hasn't been financially viable even for artist-led companies to be able to provide those resources. And artists are um, unfortunately, again, in this country, just not paid well and they don't have the funds and they don't have the means to often to, to do what they need to do. Um, for professional artists, I really think a sports psychologist in a lot of ways would be a lovely partner or teammate mm. um, because it's so important to um, acknowledge all the things that our bodies do for us and all the things we have tied up emotionally with our bodies because some of what I see, and thankfully not too often, but so many of these artists um, have dealt with their injury for so long that they are used to their shoulder hurting them. And that's part of how they identify themselves and how do you let go of that? And, and how do you even get treatment? Because what if someone tells you that your shoulder's never gonna be okay, even though it hasn't been okay for four years, you know, how, how do you get past that? So I think, you know, if I'm talking about just who would be the best for me to work with, I think a, a sports psychologist to, to help deal with the cognitive aspects of the mm. stress that these performers are under. I mean, I'd love a nutritionist. Heck yeah. Um, <laughs> again, the physical demands that these bodies are under, they need to understand the nutrition. And I feel like there's, just like in dance and, and, and just like in other performing arts, there's so many stresses. You've got the, the artists that are, I work out all the time so I can eat whatever I want. Um, or the, I am so restrictive of my diet that I don't have good options or I'm vegan and I don't know how to get enough protein or I, you know, there's, right. there's always those, those issues. Um, when I was at the I Adams conference, this last one in Montreal, mm -hmm. um, a group of us circus researchers and circus interested nerd minds um, got to get together <laughs> and we were talking about the uh, students at the national circus school there. And apparently when they come back from break, they've trained so hard their fall semester they go home for break for winter and they come back and most of them have, you know, been binge eating on all the snacks and the food and the stuff and they come back and their injury rates go up and they're, you know, cause their, their bodies aren't tuned in to, but you know, they're also teenagers, right? Like right. they'll do that. Right. Right. <laughs> they're 18 to 20, you know? So, so yes, a nutritionist would be great, but a sports psychologist would be really wonderful. <laughs> I love that. Me too. Me too. I think that's great. And um, you've written a book, Applied Anatomy of Aerial Arts. And who is this book geared towards? And what made you want to write the book? Yeah. So the book came out of basically conversations that had, has happened um, over the last about uh, eight, nine years. Um, I started teaching anatomy and biomechanics at a National Circus Conference, the American Circus Educators Conference. Um, actually back then it was still part of ICO, American Youth Circus Organization, uh, which are both different organizations that have split off. But American Circus Educators um, is a group of circus 
instructors and educators and school owners that get together uh, every other year and have a conference to share knowledge. Um, and they had asked me about eight years ago uh, to do a talk on anatomy and biomechanics. And from developing that, then other people were asking me to come give kind of the similar talk. And I kept getting the same questions. I kept coming back to basically the basics of the fundamentals of movement, the movement vocabulary. So, you know, just like in dance, you've got your positions, at least in aerial, there are some basics that are relatively universal across apparatus. You're gonna hang from your hands. You're probably gonna hook a leg and hang from a leg. You are gonna turn upside down. Um, and though we kind of know what these things should look like, there, we didn't really have a shared vocabulary to talk about how the body is actually moving through space. So the book's audience, primarily who I was writing it for were instructors and maybe a recreational body nerd and maybe a PT or a medical professional healthcare side of someone who didn't know anything about circus. So kind of, kind of coalescing around the instructor level. Um, to get an idea of how to talk about the body with other people, kind of from a kind of nerdy anatomy perspective, but mm -hmm. um, hopefully getting to be able to translate it back to um, the general population. But because there's so many universal themes in Ariel that keep coming back, I thought it was really important to talk about what muscles are actually working when we're hanging, what muscles are in what order should we be kind of firing to put the least amount of stress on our joints and ideally allow us to perform better when we're done. Because if we're in good alignment, we can have more power, we can develop more movement from that, um, from that position of control. Uh, so it, it kind of came out of the conversations from teaching and being asked to teach that eight years ago, uh, and that slow development, maybe it was more than eight years ago, but about that, um, <laughs> a while ago, it was either eight or 10, because this is one of our annual years again, so somewhere in there. but. Um, but yeah, so it came out of that, and then it just, through conversations, almost wrote itself, kind of, or at least the general idea, ideas were there. Um, and then I was lucky enough to find a publisher who would pick it up, and that took a bit of work, because people don't know that Circus is here and growing and right? uh, yeah. has become a recreational thing for hobbyists to do, mm -hmm. and it's not just the professionals, it's, you know, the... Uh, Microsoft employee who's doing it you know, after <laughs> mm -hmm. work here in Seattle mm -hmm. or you know, whomever. And I would like you to repeat one piece of that that I feel like was so, so important. You, you said a phrase in there about when you are working properly, that that actually also helps you to perform better. Absolutely. So if you're using the right muscles, that gives you good stabilization. It gives you a good anchor point to start movement from. So if you're hanging, I'm going to use hanging as an example because it's the absolute most fundamental movement of aerial. If you're not hanging, you're not off the ground. So you're hanging. <laughs> you're hanging from your hands and your shoulder girdle is in a good position, which in this case is your shoulder blades are rotated upwards, your arms are overhead, and you're, you're stable there. You're then able to move your body around that. If you're hanging more off your joints, your shoulders are pulled down on your back, which uh -huh. is kind of like in dance, if you're in, you're in fifth and you've really sunk into your shoulders, that can be a little um, too pulled down on the joint. But if you're hanging like that too, you don't have the ease of movement to get into the next position. If you're in a stable, open, controlled position, you can almost do anything from there. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that stability 
encourages healthy mobility. Mm. I am. Huh? Are people listening here? You have to do the hard work and find that small range of motion before you can get bigger. But putting in that work in that that small range of motion and and not going straight to the end range will help you be in the end range stronger and and bigger. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Learning to find the smaller muscles, the stabilizers, mm -hmm. allows you to save the powerful big muscles mm -hmm. to be powerful and big and not right. them as stabilizers and they're already half firing and then you want them to do something else. That's really hard. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, the body can use the small muscles to stabilize and those big muscles to create the power and the energy to create bigger movement. Beautiful. Because we can create a movement that would look on the outside like it's using the same movements. But if I did it, uh, same muscles, excuse me, but if I did a movement and Jen did a movement, she could be using the correct muscles and I might be using the wrong muscles and to a less perfectly trained eye than your own, it might look like it's the same. Is that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So. It can be very similar looking with only a small few details that can mm -hmm. make a huge difference. Uh, mm -hmm. The difference between someone who's going to have pain or, or, um, or difficulty with the next skill that they're trying to learn and someone who's not. So maybe in hanging, this artist doesn't have any pain or problems, but all of a sudden they're learning a next skill. They're trying to turn upside down and which is what we call inverting. Um, and all of a sudden they're having pain or they just can't do it and they can't figure out why. And sometimes it comes back to, are you hanging correctly? Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Fabulous. And where do you hope circus art, arts research goes next? Oh, there's so much up on the horizon. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. There's um, circus arts is absolutely uh, kind of hitting its stride and hitting its peak. Um, not peak, hopefully, um, hitting its stride. And we now have researchers and we have people looking at stuff. <laughs> and I know that there's a lot of research that should be coming out in the next couple of years. Um, so I really would love to see um, more, first of all, good epidemiological study. So really understanding where our injuries are coming from, um, which hopefully we will be seeing. Um, and looking personally, I love the recreational population because that's the biggest group of, of people that we get to work with. And I find it's always easier for researchers to go to a professional company and say, I want to study your artists. So most of the limited research we have in circus right now is from the Cirque du Soleil data that they have um, amassed over the years and years of the performers, which is wonderful data, mm -hmm. but it's professional artists who are already trained, who are in a performance schedule, um, and may have years of history or not, or how, and I'm very curious in how the recreational population, and our recreational population isn't just necessarily someone who's popping in and taking a class. Many of the artists I'm working with here in Seattle have been training for years, and this is part of their life, and, um, looking at that population because that's where as healthcare providers we really are interacting the most so that's where i'd like the research to go uh, and what i'd like to see um and then i have so many other ideas but realistically <laughs> that that's the, the the biggest one great and how can aerial artists find someone who can understand and work with their unique needs so Word of mouth is how a lot of artists are learning everything these days. Um, so, and it's been true in the community, you know, there's been a, a, a shared knowledge that's handed down between performers, whether it's 
um, the old Russian coach saying, rub, an, rub a raw onion on it, and that will help with your, your bruise or your, your injury. That was one right. that I've heard before. <laughs> um, but uh, but there, there is a lot of shared knowledge in the community. So asking around at your studio, if you're, an, if you're a circus artist, go into your studio, ask around, ask your instructors who they have seen, if they have seen someone. Um, usually that shared knowledge gets passed around and when someone's good and wants to listen and hear, that is helpful. Um, I also have at least a limited list of people that have expressed to me that they want to work with circus artists on my website um, under resources. So the circusdoc.com, I believe French slash resources, but the circusdoc.com and click on the resources button and there'll be a list of at least a few circus PTUs that are on there that is by far not an inclusive list, but it is a list of people who are currently practicing and have expressed interest. Um, but asking your community and if all else fails, shoot me an email. I'm usually happy to help you try to find someone in your local area. Fabulous. And we covered a lot of great, uh, interesting uh, topics. Was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you would like to, to anything you want to add? And can you also, I know you just mentioned your website, but could you uh, go through that one more time and make sure that people know where they can find you and learn more about what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, well, I think the, the thing that I think would be really fun to add is that circus is a great thing to start and try as an adult. Um, for most of us, because it wasn't so prevalent more than 10 or 15 years ago, we don't have that judgment of going in and everyone else in the class may have taken ballet since they were a kid, right? Almost everyone's going to be starting at the beginner level when you go into an entry level class and it can be a lot of fun and a great way to stay fit and stay active and work through your full range of motion. So I, I love circus. I love circus for adults. I love circus for everybody. Um, <laughs> great opportunities. Uh, I guess another thing to add is that there's great opportunities to get involved in circus, no matter what your body and what your condition. Um, we have worked with people, um, circus for Parkinson's, um, circus with people with cerebral palsy, circus for people um, with all sorts of different ways of entering into movement. And there's because circus is so broad, it's very adaptable. And finding a community with, through movement is super fun. And then to answer your question, how to find me, I am um, on social media. I am at the Circus Doc in pretty much everything, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all the places. I haven't been on TikTok yet. I, <laughs> <laughs> That's OK. In, That's so is, your, is your website the Circus Doc, or is it just Circus Doc? My website is thecircusdoc.com. Okay. And there you can find resources about circus bodies. You can find information about my book. Um, online courses are also there. And once we all start up in the world again and our teaching courses, live in-person courses will also be listed there. But if you're interested in online courses or learning more about what I do, thecircusdoc.com and poke around. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Sherb, it has been so wonderful chatting with you today. We are so grateful for you to uh, be coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing your knowledge with us. Absolutely. It was such a joy to talk to you guys today. <laughs> great. And thank you so much, Jen. It was great to chat with you as always. Of course, as always. Loved it. If you've enjoyed this program, please like, share, subscribe, and leave a review. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Bendy Body's original music is by Andrew Sabino and sound editing is by Rhett Gill. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD.
This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.